Podcast Against Disease. I am your host, Cody Weston. I'm here with Natalie Fodiatis. And today we are interviewing Dr. Glenn Treisman. Dr. Treisman. Hello, everybody. Hi. Uh, so, Dr. Treisman, can you tell us just a little bit about what you do? I do, do three different things at Johns Hopkins. I run the HIV Psychiatry Service, which is an integrated service, kind of a model service in which psychiatry is present in an HIV clinic. We see a huge number of patients in that clinic. We follow about 4,000 patients for HIV infection and their related psychiatric problems. So our service is embedded in a medicine setting. I run the chronic pain service at Johns Hopkins, which is an inpatient service and a day hospital for people with chronic pain issues and psychiatric overlap. And then I run a service called the Amos Clinic, which is a it's also called the Food Mind Body Clinic, which is a brain-gut associated clinic looking at people with chronic GI disorders and the interactions between the central nervous system and the gut nervous system. So those are the things I do. And then I see lots of patients with we-don't-know-what-this-is syndromes. For those of you listening, I've actually worked with Dr. Treisman on the chronic pain service, so I've had the pleasure of experiencing some of this work and, and seeing some of these patients that can be diagnostically challenging. And I have as well actually been able to spend time with Dr. Treisman on all three of those projects, which was a great pleasure of mine. And today we're going to focus on one of those and we're going to talk about pain. So why don't we start by giving a definition of chronic pain and acute pain? Great question and probably the most important question there is. Back in the day when the opiate epidemic started, the definition of chronic pain was pain that lasted longer than 12 weeks or some other specified time period. That is not what chronic pain is. Acute pain is when tissue is being damaged, and chronic pain is when you have pain from an adaptation made by the nervous system such that you're getting pain signals that are distorted, amplified, or otherwise changed so that tissue is not necessarily being damaged now. What's happening now is that your brain feels pain, but no tissue is being damaged. So chronic pain patients are patients who have persistent pain after an injury or have pain that's unrelated to an injury, pain that persists despite things being over, or nerve damage pain like neuropathy. And that leads into a good question that we could address as well, which is, can you give our listeners a brief overview of the nervous system and how that works and why it would result in chronic pain? Yeah, sure. So... The nervous system, everybody sort of thinks it's a telegraph where I poke you with a pin in your finger and there's a telegraph to your cortex. It's not really how it works at all. The pain system is organized in these complex sets of sensory overlapping fields that are integrated at lots of different levels. So at ganglia and in the spine and in the brainstem and in the thalamus and at the cortex. And there are little rheostats that adjust the pain up and down and depending on what your state is. So you have a nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight part of your nervous system. The nervous system we broadly divided into the voluntary nervous system, which is where you move your arms around, and the automatic or autonomic nervous system, which regulates heart rate and breathing and temperature and digestion and all the things that you don't do on purpose. 
sort of the involuntary part of the nervous system. And that part is divided again into those functions that are involved in fight or flight, the sympathetic part, and maintenance and homeostasis, the parasympathetic part. So the nervous system is divided into those two parts. The sympathetic nervous system will enhance pain. So if you're walking through a field and you hear a bee and a blade of grass pokes your foot just at that moment that you hear the bee, you'll feel like you're being stung. And you look down and you see there's no bee and this pain stops instantly. And that's the moment-to-moment regulation of pain at the sympathetic nervous system. What's happened is hearing the bee has changed the way the sympathetic nervous system senses sensory information. And it's conveyed to your brain as painful in a threatening environment. So the nervous system is adapted at lots of different places. For instance, if you cut off somebody's limb, they can develop chronic phantom limb pain. And the phantom limb pain is an adaptation of the nerves to being damaged so that your brain feels pain in something that's no longer there. But the nerves are still there. And unfortunately, damaged nerves don't go quiet. They make static. They make noise. So people with diabetes where the nerves are damaged or people who get toxicity from a heavy metal where the nerves are damaged or people who have autoimmune disease where the nerves get damaged or a variety of other things will get a bunch of static going to their brain, noise. And that noise is interpreted by the brain as painful. And then that noise can be regulated both up and down by different parts of the nervous system. So you can have peripheral neuropathy pain that's amplified by the sympathetic nervous system. You can have centrally mediated pain where the noise is amplified by the central nervous system, some part of the spine. And then you can have pain that's thalamic and you have pain that's cortical. And those different levels all interact with each other. So you have to think of it as a very complex set of controls that are controlling the volume of something, like a very highly, highly complex radio. And when the radio is hearing static, like if you have a CB radio and you're driving down the road, you hear all this staticky noise, you have a little squelch knob and you turn it. And that will get rid of the noise, but it will make the sensitivity less. So if you want the sensitivity to be high, you get more noise. If you want the sensitivity low, you can squelch the noise problem pain patients have is that generally speaking the knobs are all turned as high as they can go so they're having a lot of pain related to the noise the nervous system generally hears that can happen at lots of different levels so chronic pain is an alteration in the way the nervous system is conveying information and if somebody has a burn and they're in the burn unit and their tissue is growing back that's acute pain even though it can last a year there's tissue damage The signals to the brain are somatosensory, and the pain, you can modulate that pain, but quite honestly, that pain is conveying real somatosensory information. Whereas polyneuropathy in diabetes, people have a pain in their feet that they say is burning, hot, cold, icy burning, like a stomach ache in their foot, like a cramp in their foot, like they're being stabbed in their foot. And they describe it all those different ways because it's, the pain is dysesthetic. That is, it's not like a direct stimulation if I stuck a needle in their foot. It's instead noise that their brain is trying to figure out what it's doing. And so they say, usually they say it's a cold fire. Hmm. But what the, the signal is not clear to your brain. And in people with chronic diabetic polyneuropathy, their feet hurt all the time and they burn. Um, that burning doesn't represent 
damage to the muscles or the skin, it represents a false signal from the nerves that are being damaged. It's actually the nerves that are taking the hit more than the muscles and skin. So to treat that, you want to try to downregulate elements of the nervous system so that the brain has a better sense of what's noise and what's pain. Mm. To make things more complicated, the more you do, the more your brain can read what's really going on. But the more pain you have, the less you do. And when you don't do anything, when you don't walk on your feet because they hurt, your brain can't say, oh, that's what, that's what real pain is. That's when I'm walking. I'm getting more pressure. I'm getting these other sensations. And when I'm sitting still, I'm not having as much pain. The less you do, the less real signal there is, and the more your brain misinterprets the false signal. Hmm. So what you want to do with patients is you want to help them modulate the transmission to the brain. You want to give them drugs that help change the transmission. You want to modulate the transmission, but you also want to reactivate them so they're physically active, so that they're getting more signal. So a good approach to chronic pain involves physical therapy, teaching people to downregulate their pain by shifting the balance from the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system, and you can do that with mindfulness and relaxation and self-hypnosis and meditation and We've used transcendental meditation and biofeedback and yoga. All these modalities are good for shifting the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system. And then you want to actually try to change the neurotransmission. So you give drugs that try to adjust the rheostat, drugs that will squelch some of the noise. And empirically, we've discovered a bunch of drugs that do that. We know how some of them might work. There's a lot of them we don't know how they work at all, and we don't really know what we're going after, but we have ideas about it, we have hypotheses about it, so we can say, I think we're doing this to your nervous system, or I think we're doing that to your nervous system. But the fact of the matter is, in 32 years of doing this, what we've seen is that people's pain improves, improves a lot, and chronic pain is, because it doesn't represent ongoing tissue damage, is something that you can often help people with a lot. Hmm. Yeah, and that's it's interesting, the fundamental difference in what chronic pain starts to represent. I think it's, it's good to define it as something other than just pain that lasts a long time, because it does sound like the nature of the beast is different. One thing that I think might be interesting to people is that you are a psychiatrist, and we talked a lot about the nervous system. People might wonder why this isn't primarily a neurologic phenomenon. Can you talk a little bit about why psychiatry is an appropriate discipline to be attacking the problem of chronic pain? It's more, it's more a doctor thing than a psychiatry thing. Okay. So we've been interested in disorders of mental life in our department of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins. When we say disorders of mental life, we include the kind of problems people develop out of life experiences, so trauma or um, bad adventures or misuse as children or developmental problems or dislocations, the kinds of things that will distort the life story and make people interpret the world differently. And we're interested in diseases of the mind and the brain that distort mental life. And we're interested in the kind of psychological, let's say, basis through which people look at problems. And we're interested in behavior and behavioral difficulties. So you might think about it as an analogy with a computer. There's the software of the computer, what you experience and how it programs you to react 
So if you grow up being misused, you'll have trust issues. If you grow up being sexually misused, you'll have intimacy issues. And that's a predictable change in the software from the input. And then there's problems with the hardware, diseases of your brain in which the chip has been damaged. You have a bad gene. You have a catecholomethyltransferase promoter issue in which you'll get depressed. And the reward circuits of your brain will turn off even though there's not necessarily anything going on in your life. And the third thing you might make the analogy with is the temperament or kind of person somebody is. You might think about that as the operating system of the brain. What kind of operating system does your computer have? Are you an emotional focused person? Are you a function focused person? Are you a future and past focused person? Are you a now focused person? Do you like feelings or do you like functioning? Are you reward sensitive or are you consequence averse? And those vary in different operating systems and that some people's operating systems are very focused on getting what they want now and rewards. And other people's operating systems are very focused on the future, avoiding consequences and functioning. And those two different operating systems will produce different kinds of problems in mental life. And then lastly, um, you can think about behavioral disorders as problems of, the, of a problem that the computer can't digest. So more and more of the computer's resources are diverted to solving a problem it can't solve. That's what happens in alcoholism and drug addiction and anorexia nervosa and bulimia and, and uh, a variety of sexual addictions like paraphilias. The, computer is trying to solve a problem. It's trying to get you to experience life in a particular way that it can no longer solve. So people want the feeling they got when they first got high, but they can't get that feeling. And more and more the resources of the operating system are directed at getting and using drugs. And it takes over the whole computer. So think about those, all those different elements of mental life. And you can see how pain fits into them, particularly chronic pain. Chronic pain is one of the interests we have in our Department of Psychiatry because it's a problem of mental life. Without a ment, you have no pain. And so pain is experienced not in the arms, it's experienced in your cortex. If you don't have a cortex, you don't have any pain. You can't appreciate pain. You just, you just, it's just electrical signals till you interpret it. So we think this is a disorder of mental life. Having said that, I have colleagues who are neurologists, colleagues who are physical medicine rehab doctors, colleagues who are internal medicine doctors, orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons and you name it, there's somebody interested in pain in those fields. So <clears throat> you don't have to be a psychiatrist to be interested in pain, but our department is interested in pain because of the kind of psychiatry we do and what our commitment is. We don't think of the world as limited by diseases of your brain or the world is limited as problems with your way your mother raised you. We think the world is much more complicated than that. So we've been doing pain work at Johns Hopkins since the early 80s, late 70s, and it grew out of a guy named Don Long, who was a wonderful neurosurgeon, who had a group of patients whose backs didn't get better after surgery. And so it originally was a service for people with failed back surgery. But as the opiate epidemic evolved, it became a service for people on high doses of narcotics made much worse by their chronic pain syndrome and then made worse again by the higher dose narcotics in a little reverberating loop. And so we're very expert at the different kinds of chronic pain that we see. And how pervasive of a problem is chronic pain in the general population? And 
What distinguishes the population that you see on your inpatient service, people who come for inpatient psychiatry to treat their chronic pain versus someone who's not coming in for inpatient treatment for chronic pain but is living with it? Yeah, well, so it's a great question. Many people, even young people, have some chronic injury. They ran track and now they have a funny knee or they ran track and now they have a little ankle problem or they were injured in some other way. And they have chronic, kind of a nagging little chronic pain. It tends to bother people most when they're not doing anything. They're not distracted from it. So when they go to bed at night or when they're just sitting and waiting at the airport, the pain becomes annoying. And they mostly compensate for it. And your brain actually has an incredible ability to subtract out useless information. So while you're sitting and talking to me, you don't feel your shoes against your feet or your shirt against your skin or the headphones you're wearing against your ears. You just don't feel them. Your brain subtracts it out. People will look for their glasses and they'll be on their face. They don't feel them because their brain has subtracted out the useless information. If you're having a conversation in a crowded restaurant and you're really into the person you're talking to, you don't hear the noise. It's just subtracted out. You're not aware of it. And your brain does that, but it's, it's, it requires work to do that. So if you're fatigued, if you're tired, if you're depressed, it's harder to do that. So everybody has some element of chronic sensory information that's aversive that go in their life. Some people wear shoes that are uncomfortable, and they go through the whole day wearing uncomfortable shoes regularly, and they don't mind. And other people like comfortable shoes, and they won't tolerate it. So a lot of us are dealing with chronic sensory information all the time. So if we say what percentage of the population suffers from chronic pain, that's a really high percentage. Some people say as high as 30 or 40% of people have chronic pain. But what group of people are disordered by their pain, are unable to do what they want? How much does it interfere with their work, their appreciation of life, their ability to do things? How many people stay home when their kid's having a concert at school that they want to go to because their pain is too much for them to go. And that's a small population. So there is a small group of people whose pain is severe enough that it begins to interfere with their functioning. And then there are all kinds of things in the environment that will make that worse or better. If you hate your job and you're injured at work and you don't want to go, it's harder to go when you're hurting. And so people will develop increasing disability under those circumstances and they don't want to go because they're hurting. If they like their job, they will find a way to get over it. So there was a study done in the 1870s by a guy named Campbell that looked at a condition called railroad spine. And when you had railroad spine, which was one of the first big debates about whether it's neurological or psychological, if you got in a train accident, you'd get railroad spine. And the neurologist said it's micro tears in the nervous system and the Psychologist said, no, it's trauma and it's psychological. If you gave people a cash settlement, a year later they were functional. If you gave them a pension so they got regular payments, a year later they were disabled. Hmm. And that's what we see now. It's not any different. If you pay people to be sick, they'll be sick. If you pay people to get well, they get well. And people don't realize that. So we pay people and we call the payments disability payments. And sure, a lot of people don't want to be on disability payments, and they get off of them. But vulnerable people hear the word disability payments, and what you're doing is you're paying them to be disabled. 
And because they're conscientious, they will be disabled because you're paying them to be disabled. And what we do in our society that's completely crazy is now we call them disability payments, but we keep raising the disability requirement for you to get the payment. So you have to be more and more sick to get the money. And just like anybody, people want to accommodate that. They want to earn their disability pay, so they're more and more sick. Now, there are a bunch of people out there that are faking it and malingering. And you see videos of them on the Internet that people are supposed to be in a wheelchair and then are walking around their house. That's the exceptional case. There are people like that, but that's exceptional. It's much more insidious for most people. Most people are trying to do a good job, and they get trapped by a disability system that doesn't reward getting better. Hmm. It rewards staying sick. And where there's no resources to help people get better, what there are resources for is if you stay sick. And so our system is not very good for people with kind of chronic injuries in settings where they are not happy with their work or where there isn't support. And so the, the question is kind of what percentage of people are disabled or dysfunctional because of chronic pain. And that's a much smaller percentage. Maybe I would say 8 to 10% of people, maybe, maybe it's less. But it's in that range. It's a small percentage of people who are really, who, where, the, where their pain really impairs their day-to-day functioning. And an even smaller percentage of people are not just affected by their pain, so their level of functioning is diminished, but they are totally disabled by their pain. And they, they can't do anything. They can't work, and they can't get out of bed. And they, Those are the people we tend to see on the pain service. People where their disorder from chronic pain has gotten so severe that it's affecting all aspects of their life. And they've often been to see many, many doctors and been many, many places by the time they come to us. And they've been treated for their back by getting surgeries on their back, and they've had their nerve ablated, but they haven't had their depression treated, or they've had their depression treated, but they haven't had their nerve ablated. And the coherent view of a patient where you say, okay, this person has depression, we're going to work on that. There's a problem in their marriage, we're going to work on that. That we can see this system is pushing them toward disability, we're going to work on rehabilitation. We're going to try to change the parameters so that getting better is the goal rather than staying sick is the goal. We're going to treat their chronic pain with neuromodulators, we're going to send them to physical therapy, we're going to teach them mindfulness, we're going to teach them biofeedback, we're going to get the orthopedic surgeons to look at them to make sure there isn't something we can do, we're going to try to block their nerves a little bit so the acute pain service will come over and put in a block for us to help the person rehabilitate. And so by looking at the whole patient, these very sick patients often get dramatically better, which both of you got to see when you worked with me. Mm-hmm. Some of these patients who have been sick for years and everybody had sort of given up on them, and then they kind of, like the phoenix, rise from the ashes and turn back into a person. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting to see. Yeah. That's, you know, it makes my work fairly rewarding. Go to work every day and get to see these miracles happen. But the miracle is not because we're smarter. The miracle is because we're more persistent and because we try to see the big picture and work on all elements of the patient. That means a lot of collaboration. So good things about the pain service, gets people better against all odds with all kinds of conditions. Bad thing is it's labor intensive and expensive and time consuming and requires tertiary expertise. I have to get a neurologist who actually knows what they're doing. I have to get a surgeon who knows what they're doing. It can't be done piecemeal, it has to be done cooperatively. Yeah, and I saw that on the service myself. 
the number of consultations it would take to really put the whole story together is orders of magnitude beyond what a lot of psychiatric services require. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was fascinating to see how much the more general medical knowledge kind of came into the picture in dealing with these problems. So you touched on some of the different treatments that you offer to your patients in service. I'm wondering if we could expand a little bit on that, maybe the difference between neuromodulators, what is a neuromodulator, immunomodulators? Yeah, and I think it's interesting to get into this idea of how chronic pain needs to be treated differently from acute pain. I know we've kind of gotten at that, but I think it's worth mentioning that a lot of people out there, their idea of pain control is you take a Tylenol, you take an ibuprofen, you take an opiate if it's severe pain. That's about as far as most people's understanding of pain control might go. And clearly this is a fundamentally different approach. Yeah, because it's a fundamentally different problem. Yeah. So if you have acute pain, what you want to do is block the pain. So anti-inflammatories block inflammation. So if you get stuck with a needle, you'll get some white cells that will come marching in to try to clean up the damage. And they will release things that will make the tissue swell and turn red and hurt, cytokines. And anti-inflammatory drugs like, like Motrin inhibit that. Um, ibuprofen inhibits that. So it decreases the pain that way. And then it has actions on the central nervous system where it decreases pain transmission. And opiates block pain transmission. Uh, but it's a very interesting thing, thing about opiates. There's really two parts to pain. There's the... Physi- the somatosensory part, and there's the, I'll call it emotional part. So if you get your blood drawn, an 18-gauge needle going into your antecubital vein is not as unpleasant as you might think. But because a needle's going in and blood's coming out, you get a big emotional response. My wife used to keep bees. She if she got stung by a bee, you know, she'd feel really bad for the bee because it was going to die now, and she'd pull it out and flick the stinger out. And if I get stung by a bee, I'm hysterical. And, and she gives me grief because she'll say, well, you know, you let medical students draw your blood with an 18-gauge needle, and it's a lot bigger needle than a bee sting. A bee sting is just a little, you know, a little sting. And it's true, the emotional part's the big issue. Um, and you can see that in because low-dose opiates, the opiates we usually use, they don't block the pain much at all. They block the distress part. Interesting. And so what you'll see is people will still be in pain, but they won't mind anymore. You know, you're having a kidney stone, and uh, you get slammed with a few milligrams of, of IDV Dilaudid, and the pain's not gone, but you don't care about it anymore. You're cheerful and happy, even though you're having kidney stone pain, because the opiates at lower doses, what they block is the distress part. Mm. At higher doses, they actually block the pain transmission. Um, in an acute pain setting, that's very good. But you have to think about your brain as an organ that's responding to the environment all the time. Mm. If you're in brighter light, your eyes desensitize to light. If you're in dimmer light, your eyes increase their sensitivity to light. In a situation where you have chronic pain, if I give you narcotics, your brain's not getting the normal pain information it's supposed to get. It's blocked. Mm. So it will increase its sensitivity to pain over time. So in acute pain, the goal is block the pain. In chronic pain, opiates tend to make pain worse. They do it because they chronically block the brain's ability to perceive normal pain, and your brain upregulates its sensitivity to pain. So acute blockers are not good. 
anti-inflammatories don't seem to wear off. Hmm. Tylenol, whatever its mechanism of action, it's magic, doesn't seem to wear off. That is, it doesn't block the brain's ability to perceive pain, and therefore you don't get a rebound. Hmm. But with opiates, which are much more powerful in terms of their modulation of pain, you also get a much more, a much bigger change in the way the brain perceives pain if you stay on them for a long time. Hmm. So opiates produce tolerance, that is, to get the same pain relief, you need to keep taking more and more opiate. And in a chronic pain setting, the more opiate you take, the more your brain upregulates its sensitivity to pain, and the more opiate-mediated hyperalgesia, that's the term for opiate-maintained pain, that you see in patients. So ordinary pain is amplified in the presence of opiates. You can even develop allodynia on opiates, where normal sensation, like a squeeze of your skin, will produce a pain sensation because your brain is so upregulated from the opiates. And when you see people on 100 milligrams or 200 milligrams of oxycodone a day, their pain is always an 8 or a 9 or a 10. Almost everybody. You say, well, is the opiate helping your pain? They say, yes, your pain's a 9. How can it be helping? You know? They, they say, no, no, it's the only thing that helps. And, uh, but your pain's a 10. There's no higher rating than that. Yeah, it's terrible. Pain's terrible. Well, the opiates aren't helping. Oh, yes, they are. So, well, if you weren't on opiates, what would it be? A 10. That's what it is on opiates. So can't be higher. Hmm. 10 is the max. So people get a distortion of their sense of pain in the presence of opiates. Hmm. So if you break your leg, you want opiates. If you are going to have surgery, you want opiates. If you're having a, you know, some even minor procedure that's really painful, you want opiates. If you have a tooth extracted, you want anti-inflammatories. And if you have chronic pain, you definitely do not want opiates. So if you have some surgery, if we keep you on opiates too long, actually we amplify the pain. Now, weirdly enough, if we get good pain control in the acute setting, which is a big worry of mine now, is, is people have sort of said, stop using opiates, stop using opiates, stop using opiates. Just like 10 years ago and 15 years ago, they were saying, start using opiates, start using opiates. If people have acute pain and we don't control it very well, they have a tendency to get chronic pain. And so you really do want to control post-surgical pain. But you don't want to control it for a month. You want to control it for a couple of days, just till the person is starting to function again, and then you get rid of the opiates as quickly as you can. You don't want to become a chronic and tolerance-based problem. So in chronic pain, what you want to do instead is to try to squelch the noisy nerves. So a drug like a tricyclic antidepressant, we tend to think about it in psychiatry as an antidepressant drug. But lots of other people think about it a lot of other ways because nortriptyline is a neuromodulator. Mm -hmm. It's not just a tricyclic antidepressant. It's a drug that changes the way nerve functions. And it, it changes the way your nerve functions in your opiate system, and it changes the way your nerves function in your reward system in, like, in a condition like depression, but it also changes the way pain is transmitted in your peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. So nortriptyline will downregulate the sympathetic nervous system some because it's a noradrenergic reuptake inhibitor, and it will decrease your sensitivity to pain, and it will make nerves, it'll, it'll make nerves less likely to fire in a noisy way because it's a channel blocker. It does stuff to the sodium channel. So it has effects on nerves in lots of different ways, and therefore it's very useful in people with chronic pain. SNRI antidepressants similarly, although 
SSRI antidepressants, which are mostly serotonergic, are not very useful for chronic pain in my experience. You'll see people use them for chronic pain, but I haven't found them to be very good. SNRIs, serotonergic noradrenergic reuptake inhibitors, I find much more useful in chronic pain, drugs like duloxetine and other drugs in that class. Anticonvulsants, the way they work as seizure medicines, is by damping down reverberating loops of neurons in your brain which start to fire in a synchronous way and cause a seizure. Well, they do the same thing in the pain system. So some anticonvulsants turn out to be very useful in chronic pain syndromes. But they're not all useful. We don't know why, but we do know that they're not all useful in chronic pain. Drugs like gabapentin and pregabalin are used a lot in chronic pain. But Tegretol, uh, carbamazepine, I'm not allowed to say the real names of these things. You have to say the generic name. Valproic acid, which is Depakote, and Lamotrigine, Lamictal. These are anticonvulsants that are very useful in some chronic pain situations. Topiramate, sodium, Topamax. And they all have uses in different patients. And then you can do various things like calcium channel blockers and alpha receptor drugs and a variety of other things that we do that we try try to fine-tune the nervous system as much as you can to decrease the chronic pain signaling. Mm. But you also want to teach people how to kind of downregulate their sympathetic nervous system with relaxation and shift from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic state. You also want to teach people how to distract themselves from their pain so their brain will subtract out the abnormal sensation. And those distraction techniques are very useful in people who are struggling with chronic pain. And you want to get people activated so the brain is getting clear signals of what's real physical stimulation. So one of the things we see is a condition called, it's now called complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS. It used to be called reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which I think is a better name, and before that, sympathetically maintained pain. And originally causalgia was the name of it. And in that condition, either minor injury, or a big injury, but usually a minor injury, and over time, the pain gets worse and worse and worse, way out of proportion to the injury. And the, the pain can spread from the injured place all the way up the person's leg or all the way up their arm, and even across into their other side, and sometimes in their whole body. And it's a chronic, sympathetically activated state where the sympathetic nervous system is overacting and sending pain signals when they shouldn't be sent. And you can see breakdown of the skin and loss of hair and something called orange peel skin, where the skin looks like an orange peel, as a result of reflex sympathetic dystrophy. I don't think you were there, but we had a case, I think last summer, of a woman who had very dramatic orange peel skin on her leg and terrible pain. Now, what does somebody do when their leg or their arm is in pain? They don't move it because it hurts. And the more you don't move it, the worse RSD gets. Reflexibility dystrophy gets much worse if you don't move your extremity. And the more you don't move it, the more the pain gets. So we'll see people come in with their arm wrapped in gauze and socks and, and cotton so that they don't feel anything because they can't stand any sensation on their skin. And they, it's intolerable for you to just touch it lightly. And um, what we do with those patients is we take all that stuff off and we have them begin with stroking their skin with a feather and then cotton ball and then sock and then a soft sweater. And we work from the place where the pain is spread the furthest toward the center where the pain is at its worst and gradually desensitize the person to pain. If you try to do that without neuromodulators, 
the pain actually just gets worse. Hmm. But if you have the person on neuromodulators when you're doing it, so they're sympathetic, this kind of amplification loop you get from the sympathetic nervous system is blocked, then the pain gets better. Hmm. So for patients that have chronic pain, but it's not disabling chronic pain, the ones you talked about earlier who maybe have an old sports injury or they had some kind of accident and their back bothers them every day. Or polyneuropathy from diabetes or post-herpetic neuralgia. People who've had shingles will get post-shingles pain. Anytime you injure nerves, you're going to see a chronic pain syndrome in some of the people who have that. And those people are also very treatable. They tend not to have to come in the hospital to get treated, Um, but there are good practitioners out there who know how to treat them. Many of my colleagues in anesthesia are really good at treating chronic pain and know how to do it with neuromodulator medicines as well as I know how to do it. My partner in the gastroenterology clinic, uh, Jay Pasricha, who's a neurogastroenterologist, has spent years learning how to treat chronic abdominal pain, and we use the same medicines. And he knew how to use those medicines before he ever met me. And uh, I knew how to use those medicines before I met him. But we both taught each other a lot about the interaction between pain in the gut and pain in the brain. And so um, we're much better now at that overlap. So for those patients or for those people who are just dealing with chronic pain and maybe they're of the disposition where they can have a smile on their face and they're they're chipper anyways, but they do have real pain and and up to this point, nothing has really worked for them. What kind of recommendations might you just give generally for them to, to try? Well, they need to work with a really good doctor who is willing to do trials and look for the cause of their pain. So we see people who have undiagnosed autoimmune disease fairly regularly with chronic pain syndromes. We discover the autoimmune disease, well, you might want to treat that. They may have, let's say they have psoriasis of their skin and chronic pain. Unless you treat their psoriasis, their chronic pain is going to get worse because they're getting nerve damage from the autoimmune disease that's causing the psoriatic plaques, Hmm. and they'll get psoriatic arthritis. So you, you really want to see if you can find a source for the pain. If you know the source for the pain, let's say someone comes in with diabetes, polyneuropathy, pretty common problem right now. You want to get them physically active, you want to get them exercising, and you want to go after their pain with all the modalities we know. So the recommendation is that you find a doctor who's interested in chronic pain, that you work with them. I do lots of trials. I mean, I don't know which drug's going to work for somebody. Um, I'm not that smart. I think you did mention, actually, as I was preparing for this interview, I was looking through my notebook, and I have a quote from you that said, even a blind pig will eventually find an acorn. That's my method. <laughs> yeah. I tell patients that, too. I say, my method is, even a blind pig eventually finds an acorn. We will figure out. And in a weird way, we're blind. We don't have a blood test or a nerve test or anything else to be able to say, oh, you have this kind of pain, nortripline's going to help. What we have is... I vaguely recognize that this is probably more sympathetic than central. So you're more likely to respond to something that downregulates the sympathetic nervous system than just an anticonvulsant. So let's start with a neuroenergic drug. I don't know if that's true, by the way, because I haven't proven it. But generally speaking, you have all these hypotheses you develop from seeing lots and lots of patients that are hard to test. We don't have good research tools to test a lot of these things. Um, But you've tested them in the clinic, and you've seen people get better. So 
I have treated lots of people with milder pain syndromes as outpatients. I just can't, now with everything I'm doing, I can't treat a lot of those patients. But I follow quite a number of patients over the years who've had chronic pain syndromes. And in the HIV clinic, we saw lots and lots of neuropathy, and we treated lots of neuropathy, and we get most people better. Um, we had a guy who came in on 200 milligrams of oxycodone a day who shuffled into our clinic taking one little tiny step at a time and took me about two years, and he was walking like a normal person, even though he had very severe neuropathy from D drugs that he was exposed to early on. And his nerves were still damaged, but they were much less damaged than they had been. They had recovered quite a bit, but he developed a chronic pain syndrome. And as he got off opiates, got rid of that amplification and got on anticonvulsants and uh, neuroidinergic drugs, his pain got much better. And the more he did, the less pain he had. And sorry, what is a D drug? Oh, in the HIV world, we have different classes of drugs. And one group of drugs that came out very early on were uh, nucleoside and nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors, okay. N NRTIs, or nukes as they were called. Okay. And two of the nukes, D4T and DDI, were particularly neurotoxic. Hmm. And people on those drugs often had very severe neuropathy pain. If they stopped those drugs, they died, so they took those drugs. But we didn't have a lot of weapons in the beginning, okay. um, and people were willing to tolerate getting neuropathy. HIV causes neuropathy. Hmm. Heroin causes neuropathy. The junk that's in heroin causes neuropathy. Hepatitis C causes neuropathy. Hmm. So my patients had lots of neuropathy. Yeah. And now they're getting neuropathy from diabetes as they get older. I'd much rather they had neuropathy that's related to being too old rather than neuropathy that's related to, you know, shuffling off to Buffalo. Yeah. So I'm actually... a a big fan of the AIDS clinic. I've, we've seen this wonderful miracle, but I want to be able to still help my patients. And so a lot of them have chronic pain syndromes that we can help. Hmm. Okay. So earlier as well, you kind of mentioned this briefly in treating the whole patient when you're looking at someone who has chronic pain. And what would you say to the thought that sometimes chronic pain can be more or less of a manifestation of past trauma? Is that Yeah, so this is real? the, this is the this, well, not just past trauma. This is the concept of somatization. That is, that you convert a psychologically painful state into a physically painful state. You can t actually talk about neural mechanisms by which that happens, but there's no question that you observe it all the time. If you have a patient with chronic pain, and you recognize that it's a somatization amplification of pain, often by doing psychotherapy, you can help them understand the pain, and the pain will go away. And it's very dramatic when it happens. But the idea that people can't remember their trauma, and as soon as they remember it, the pain's going to vanish in a puff of smoke, that's more TV than it is reality. But as people become more and more aware of their psychological states and their psychological stressors and confront them and deal with them, often that kind of pain gets very much better. And we, we talk a lot about somatization and stress in a person's life, making them more sensitive to pain. But you can, find it, you can think about these neural mechanisms very easily. Stress activates the sympathetic nervous system. People with trauma will tend to have an activated sympathetic nervous system because they're anxious about what could happen to them next, having had something horrible happen to them. So they are, you can think about them as having 
chronically activated sympathetic nervous systems, which is one of the mechanisms of chronic pain. So it's not either or. What you're looking for is all the different ways in which pain is being amplified by a person, which can include psychological experiences. Another thing that happens that's psychological also is the expectation of zero pain. You know, people who expect to have no pain are going to have a disappointing life because you're often going to have some pain. And I have patients all the time who say, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed. I just told you what I do for a living. In all three of those settings, patients die. In all three of those settings, a small mistake can have real ramifications for me. I have to check people's labs every day. I have to go and, and learn things that I don't know anything about from my education. I'm you know, learning gastroenterology now, and I had to learn infectious disease to be an HIV doctor. And I had to learn about hepatitis C and HIV and weird, weird infections that you get when you're immunosuppressed. Mm. HIV patients used to get opportunistic infections like nocardia and other weird things that I, you know, I never heard about those in medical school. They're, they're opportunistic infections. But, you know, when the HIV epidemic came along, I had to learn all that stuff. That's pretty stressful. Yeah. And yet I don't go around feeling stressed. And so my patients tell me they're stressed, and they describe their life to me, which is considerably less burden than mine. I have to wonder why are they stressed, and what are the elements of their stress, and what's causing them to be stressed by those things? And why have, has nobody taught them coping skills for dealing with an overwhelming circumstance? And nobody's taught them coping skills. You know, I learned coping skills from my father, who was a surgeon, who had plenty to cope with, and nobody's taught those people any coping skills. It's not because they don't want to have coping skills. In fact, once you teach those patients coping skills, they get good at it very quickly. That's why we can get people better. But the idea that people are somaticizing trauma or somaticizing previous psychological experiences or somaticizing psychological experience that's distressing in their life now, that's a very common thing. And the extreme end of that is something in psychiatry we call a conversion disorder, in which people overnight will suddenly develop paralysis of a limb. And there's no physiological explanation for their sudden paralysis of that limb. They won't be able to move their arm. And you talk to them about what's going on in their life, and you find out that they grew up in this very strict religious background, and they're 19 years old and pretty, and you say, have you had any kind of physical intimacy with anybody yet and they start talking a little bit and eventually you talk about their boyfriend and they touched it and you know as soon as you get to that their paralysis goes away <laughs> and you're not done then you have to work on how can you keep them from coping with the next steps in their life by getting paralyzed and how can you help them manage the development of their sexuality and the separation from their family in a way that's healthy rather than destructive. And that's, you know, another part of understanding mental life. And the extreme, this extreme of somatization is conversion. But it's, you know, conversions tend to be very simple. Some event happens and the person develops a contrasting syndrome. However, when you examine people with conversion, they usually have limited resources, they usually have poor coping skills, and they usually have adverse circumstances in their life. And therefore, when you address those things and help them get a handle on those things, 
they're not likely to have conversion anymore. They, they develop more sophisticated ways to deal with stresses in their life. And speaking of coping skills, I think this is a nice segue into perhaps a final topic that we'll talk about. Many people apparently have found that smoking marijuana is helpful for pain or not only smoking marijuana, but... Yes, CBD oil and all these related things now um, that are coming down the pike with all these legalization efforts. Right. So what are your thoughts on, on that? This is a very contentious topic. So one of my colleagues in New York, Dr. David Younger, who's a a truly brilliant neurologist, um, and I treat patients in common with him, has had success with cannabinoids. I've had no success with cannabinoids. I don't think that they're very useful in most patients. I discourage patients from taking them because I think they produce rebound, just like other things that have acute onset produce rebound. In the trials that have been done, they're not very effective. And everybody talks about, well, they showed this efficacy and this and that efficacy and that. They're not FDA approved for anything. Now, I want you to know, if my patient's in pain and I can't get them better, I'll do anything. Cody knows I'll do more than anything. He's seen me do more than anything. You know, often the residents are shocked by how far I'll go to get somebody better. So I'm not saying I would never give anybody cannabinoids. But the idea that cannabinoids are a medicine that should be routinely distributed is the next opiate epidemic that's coming up on us. It's going to happen the same way. The way it works now, if you want a marijuana card in Maryland, is you go see a doctor or a nurse practitioner or anybody, and they write you for a card. They don't see you for follow-up. They don't track how you're doing. They don't give you a dose. They don't give you a route. They don't give you an amount. They just give you a card, and then you go to a dispensary, and somebody who, you know, has been educated by the dispensary, this marijuana is better for a smooth high, and this better marijuana is better for this, and this marijuana is better. With no data, there's no evidence for that. It's not, it's not like hundreds and hundreds of papers saying this kind of marijuana with these things. It's somebody's opinion. It would be like the pharmacist. You write a prescription for an antibiotic, and the pharmacist decides what antibiotic, how long they're going to take it, what dose, and, and gives them infinite refills and sells them the antibiotics so they stay on them forever. And also the pharmacist doesn't have any pharmacy training in this case. Right, exactly. The pharmacist doesn't have any pharmacy training in this case. So what are you going to say in court 10 years from now when the patient walks in and says, that doctor wrote me a prescription for marijuana. At the time, he knew there were no FDA-approved indications for marijuana. None. And the evidence was iffy for everything. And he knew it increased my risk for getting schizophrenia, and he knew it increased my risk for lowering my IQ if I was young. And he knew it was addictive in about 1 in 20 people, just like alcohol. He knew all of that, and he gave me the marijuana, and he never saw me for follow-up, unlike any other drug in medicine. He didn't see me back to see how I was doing. He didn't give me an amount. He didn't regulate it. He didn't follow me. He just gave it to me. And now my life is ruined and I'm a marijuana addict. What are you going to say in your defense? And that's what's happening. I mean, that's, that's insane. It was, and by the way, the opiate epidemic was exactly the same thing. Hmm. You know, we were told that, opiate was, that opiates had to be given more, that pain was a vital sign, that in the, 
Jayco went around telling everybody they had to manage pain and they made everybody check the smiley faces and the, and the frowny faces and the pain one through 10. If your pain was an eight, it was an emergency. We had to give you narcotics. We gave everybody narcotics. And if your pain wasn't controlled, we just gave you more narcotics. And people would say, well, people who act like they're addicts on this drug, they're just, it's pseudo addiction. They're just acting like that because they're still in pain. I had fights with that, people about that in the 90s and in early 2000s, huge fights at meetings where people were, it was like a religious movement. And one of the guys who was a leader of it said it was like a religious movement. You know, the, the only person who's taken responsibility for the opiate epidemic is Russell Portnoy, who was a big promoter. He was the pain is a vital sign guy, was the president of the American Pain Society. And he promoted the use of opiates. And what he says now is it was like a religious movement. And it was. And the marijuana thing is like a religious movement. It's not data-based. Talk about evidence-based medicine. This is not evidence-based medicine. So, you know, I'm very reticent to give people opiates, or give people opiates, and I'm very reticent to give them cannabinoids. This is a, this is a fad right now. And of course, everybody feels better on cannabinoids because they get you high. Everybody feels better on opiates because they get you high. There are two kinds of drugs in the world. Those with less than 100% compliance, like drugs for a urinary tract infection, which nobody ever finishes, or they're cold, which nobody ever finishes, and drugs with more than 100% compliance, where people run out early. Those are cannabinoids, benzodiazepines, stimulants, opiates, drugs that have a reinforcing property in which they make you feel better and make you want to take them more. Now, having said that, cannabinoids are nowhere near as addictive as opiates. But they are addictive, and they're probably around as addictive as alcohol, and probably 1 in 20-ish people will get into trouble from them who use them. But that's plenty to not give them to people willy-nilly. This is not an issue of legalization. I don't care if it's, if you legalize marijuana, as far as I'm concerned, there's not much different than legalizing alcohol. A lot of problems with legalizing alcohol, a lot of problems with it being illegal. Um, we have a terrible crime epidemic in this country because of marijuana. I think probably the risk-benefit is in favor of legalization at this point. But to say it's a medicine with no real good data, that's a disservice to people. Well, and I think it can weaken the bond of trust between, which is already fractured in a lot of ways, between communities and doctors because we're sort of misrepresenting it if we pitch it as such, and it, I think it might lead people to underestimate the negative effects. Well, it's even worse. It's weakening the bond between physicians and the community because patients come in saying, I need a marijuana card, and if you won't give it to them, you're a bad doctor because the culture is telling them that marijuana is a medicine. Yeah. And how can they not think it's a medicine when it's, been, it's called medical marijuana? It's approved as a medicine. The state says you can prescribe it. Yeah. This, but by the way, if you prescribe it and that person gets addicted, the state isn't going to step in and say, well, Dr. Weston, you know, we did say marijuana was a medicine, so he, was, he did the right thing. Yeah. They're going to hang you out to dry just like they did with the opiates. And there are doctors being sued all over this country right now. There was a 15 point some million dollar settlement in St. Louis patient who sued about being prescribed opiates. And the doctor said, well, they said it was a vital sign and blah, blah, blah. And they said, yeah, you're the doctor. You wrote the prescription. And in fact, if you write the prescription, you are the doctor. And so whatever the fad of the moment is, 
chicken entrails or marijuana or dancing in a circle or wearing a goat head, whatever the fad of the moment is for healers, you don't necessarily buy it. You think critically about it and decide what's going to help your patient. And if the goat head helps my patient, I'm willing to wear the goat head. But, I, you know, I'm only going to wear the goat head if I'm convinced it's going to help my patient. If the patient says, look, for me to get better, I need you to wear the goat head, I say, I do the decision about whether I wear the goat head or not, not yeah. you. Yeah, wait for the randomized controlled trial to come out. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm afraid we're about out of time, but Dr. Treisman, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us about this. I think this is a, a big problem that we're going to continue to face, and as we started to discuss, I think is going to continue to evolve. And yeah, we, we'd love to talk to you again sometime. But well, we really you know where I am. Yeah, thank you very much. You're Pleasure welcome. as always.